Let us again turn to that portion from the Word of God that we read this morning as we find it in the Gospel of Luke. The Gospel of Luke in the 23rd chapter and the 43rd verse. Luke chapter 23, verse 43, where we read these words, And Jesus said unto him, Verily I say unto thee, Today shalt thou be with me in paradise. Verily I say unto thee, Today shalt thou be with me in paradise. How wonderful and marvelous these words are of our Savior, these gracious and noble words that he spoke to this poor dying man, the man that's often referred to as the penitent thief that was dying on his own cross next to the Lord of glory. And so at this time, as it was appointed, indeed as it was prophesied in the scripture of old, as we read, the Lord Jesus Christ being crucified and on his right hand side, there's one thief being crucified, and on his left-hand side, there's another man, another thief, being crucified, so that all three men are being crucified together, as we read in the Gospel account, that Scripture may be fulfilled when it says, as we read earlier today from Isaiah chapter 53, that he, that is the Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah, was numbered with the transgressors. And not only was he situated in the midst of these two transgressors, but at first, when they were crucified, they actually added to our Lord's misery as he hung there on the cross because they both mocked him. As we read in a parallel account in Mark 15, and they that were crucified with him reviled him. And also, in the parallel account in Matthew 27, we read, The thieves also which were crucified with him cast the same in his teeth. But what is really remarkable, it's so remarkable that words can't really express because it's an act of the Holy Spirit. In some mysterious fashion, during the first three of the six hours that these three men hung on their crosses, one of those thieves did not remain in this same condition. One of the two thieves had a change. There was a definite change that came over him because we see again that at first he mocked him, he mocked the Lord, and then later he has quite a different thing to say. Now, how was this thief affected? to have such a dramatic change. Perhaps he was affected as he watched our Savior struggle on the cross of Calvary. Or perhaps he was affected by reading that sign that Pilate put over Christ's head, which read in three different languages, this is Jesus, the King of the Jews. And indeed later, This thief does come to a recognition of Christ's kingship. For he says in verse 42, we read, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. 
It's a profession of faith that Christ indeed is king. And so I say, perhaps as that thief, that wretched thief, was dying on the cross, and he looks over to the Lord, and he looks up at the sign. Perhaps he was thinking about those words, that this is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Now, we don't really know. The Word of God doesn't reveal it to us. We certainly do know that this cannot be explained other than by an act of the Holy Spirit, for otherwise it is utterly impossible that this man could have been changed. And so look with me at at this exchange in, in our passage between the two thieves and our Lord, starting in verse 39. Remember, this is not some exchange that these men had around a table over a cup of coffee. Here we have the men dying. They're very, very close to death, and they have this exchange. We read, And one of the malefactors, which were hanged, railed on him, that is, railed on Christ, saying, If thou be Christ, save thyself and us. But now the heart of that other thief being crucified is changed. And listen to what he says. He rebukes the first thief. And he says, Dost not thou fear God, seeing thou art in the same condemnation? Here we are, dying on our crosses. Don't you fear God in this hour? You are struggling, wrestling with death. There are some scholars that say that crucifixion is a, is a slow process of suffocation because the way it works is that for them to breathe well, they have to push themselves up, even on those nails that is driven through their flesh in order to breathe well. And, of course, in pain, they recoil and they relax, but then it's hard for them to breathe again. And so they go back and forth and back and forth, and it's very exhausting just for them to breathe. This man, this thief, is suffering those things. He knows the the crimes that he's committed. He knows that he's being judged for them. And yet, where is the fear of God in this man? Where is the fear of God in us? We may not be hanging on the trees of Calvary, but we don't know. We don't know when our time will be finished upon this earth. The Lord has never told us in the Scripture how long we have to live. We don't know. Do we fear God? And so this penitent thief chastises the other thief and says, Dost not thou fear God, seeing thou art in the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. But this man, referring to the Lord Jesus Christ, hath done nothing amiss. This thief on the cross has been so affected that he recognizes the sinlessness of our Lord. This man, he says, has done nothing amiss. Next, then, we come to the profession of the thief, the profession of faith, when he says to Jesus, Lord, remember me, when thou comest into thy kingdom. And then Jesus says unto him, Verily I say unto thee, Today shalt thou be with me in paradise. 
I remember when I was first converted, I think uh, maybe within the first six months or a year or so of my conversion, I, I was really struck by this, this verse, by this text. And I'm not sure I, I understood then, not that I fully understand now, but what is so marvelous about the words of our Lord here. And I think that it may have something to do with this stark contrast. What a contrast there is here in these gracious words of Christ to this man when we look at and we consider all the things that were happening in this scene of crucifixion. The scene of crucifixion which is so vividly expressed to us in the Gospels. I want us to mark out this stark contrast between this this scene which is vividly depicted for us here in the Gospel account and these wonderful, gracious words of the Lord Jesus Christ to this believing thief. So this was a time of great malice and wickedness, that this was a time of the murder of the King of glory, even as the Apostle Peter later would tell us in the book of Acts, in the second chapter, that this was a time where Jesus was delivered up by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. And Peter says to the people, Ye have taken, and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. So this was a time in which the Lord Jesus Christ, the God-man, was delivered and was taken by wicked hands and crucified and slain. Indeed, as our Lord Himself described it, when He was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, He said, When I was daily with you in the temple, you stretched forth no hands against me. But this is your hour. And the power of darkness. You see, this time, unlike and different from the hours or the days or the weeks, months, years prior to this time, this time is being distinguished by darkness, by the power of darkness. It was their time. It was their hour. That is, in God's providence, it was a time for the wicked. It was a time of the power of darkness. Now, literally, it was a time of darkness, as we read in the Gospel account, because about the same time that the Lord spoke these words to the penitent thief, the sun, we are told, was darkened. In verse 45, we read the sun was darkened, and in verse 44 we read, and there was a darkness over all the earth until the ninth hour. This was a time of great wickedness and great devilishness. This scene of crucifixion was a time of a great flurry of demonic activity, such as we had never seen before and never have seen since. That it was as if the very mouth of hell opened up below the feet of these three men hanging on the crosses. And that the very flames of hell flickered up from this this gaping hole in the earth. And these 
flames of fire from hell licked at the feet of these men, the mouth of hell eager to consume them, to swallow them whole, if it were possible. And it is as if there was this murky cloud of gloom and darkness coming up out of this pit of hell, the furnace of hell, making the whole scene murky and dark in these billows of smoke. And yet, at the same time, we have the words of the Lord Jesus Christ, like like a thin beam of light shooting out of his mouth, cutting through and penetrating through all those billows of darkness that surrounded him in his crucifixion. And so, the words of Christ to this man sound like a sublime celestial music when heard amidst the noise and rumblings of that howling furnace from which flew out those principalities, those powers, those rulers of darkness of this world, that spiritual wickedness who raged in battle against the Lord of glory. This was a time of great darkness. But also, this was a time of mockery. Listen to the different things that the people spoke against Christ as he suffered there on the cross. Those that were passing by, we read, reviled him, railed on him, and wagging their heads, shaking their heads. They said, Ah, thou that destroyest the temple and buildest it in three days, save thyself. If thou be the Son of God, come down from the cross. And the soldiers mocked him. Not only the soldiers that mocked him and and pushed that crown of thorns upon his head before the Lord was crucified, but also the soldiers at the cross mocked Christ. As we read, that they offered him vinegar to drink. And then they said to him, If thou be the king of the Jews, save thyself. And then we have the mockeries of the chief priests and the scribes and the elders, saying, He saved others, but he cannot save himself. If he be the king of Israel, if he be Christ, the chosen of God, let him now come down from the cross and we will believe him. Do you see what a contrast all these words of mockery are to our gracious Lord's words to this penitent thief on the cross? Truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. What a stark contrast. And again, the priests, scribes, and elders said, Let Christ the King of Israel descend from the cross that we may see and believe. (laughs) I tell you that even if the Lord, as he said at an earlier time, prayed so that 12 legions of angels came and brought him down from the cross at that time, I tell you that these wicked men, these priests and scribes and elders, still would not believe even though they say and they taunt the Lord and mock him and say, come down the cross, now we'll believe in you. They wouldn't believe. Their hearts are too hardened. They're too blind. Their hearts are encapsulated with wickedness. Even if the Lord was to descend from the cross, they wouldn't believe. And so, this was a time of the great and dreadful judgment of God upon even his own dear son, his own beloved son. For remember, on the cross, 
that was the time that he was receiving the full blast of judgment from God Almighty. As we offend God's infinite holiness, there is an infinite guilt that must be paid. The Lord Jesus Christ was paying for that infinite guilt, for the sins of his people, for the sins of those to whom the Lord had given him, as we read in the scripture. Jesus Christ is our Paschal Lamb, our sacrifice. And he was being consumed as the Paschal Lamb with that judgment from God. His life was being poured out as a propitiation, that is, as a satisfaction to meet divine justice, to meet God's wrath and curse for our sin. Jesus was drinking that foaming and bubbly cup of dreadful judgment from the Lord. He was draining that cup, even down to the very dregs. But perhaps recorded here in the gospel, perhaps the pinnacle of our Lord's suffering comes as we hear him cry out, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Now those are the very words at the beginning of Psalm 22. But don't think of it as the Lord was quoting the psalm, but think of it rather that the psalm recorded the words of the Lord Jesus, that the psalm prophesied the very experience that the Lord would have on the cross of Calvary. And so what does this mean? When Christ cries out, my God, why have you forsaken me? Is it true? Is it just um, a poetical flourish? Is it figurative? Is it true that God forsook the Son, God the Father forsook the Son? Yes, it is true. The Heavenly Father, as it were, in a mysterious way we can't understand exhaustively, turns his face away from the Son, his beloved Son, as he is nailed to the cross. And though Christ was at the height of his physical suffering, this still did not compare to what he suffered spiritually. And so again, these words of our Lord to this penitent thief are remarkable. Remarkable. In the midst of all these things that were going on at the same time. And yet, despite all of that, despite all things that we can see and hear, if we were there at the time of the Lord's crucifixion, Jesus pronounces this sure word to this poor thief. Verily, he says, in other words, truly, there's no doubt, despite all that you see around us, truly I say to you that today you shall be with me in paradise. Even today, even this very day in which we are dying, this very same day, not only will you no longer be here in this, this hill of death, this hill of Golgotha, the, the place of the skull it's called, but you will be with me this very same day in paradise. In paradise. What a remarkable word this is that our dying Savior gives to this man. And so this morning, I would like to consider at greater length the words, this expression that 
the Lord Jesus speaks to this poor, wretched, dying thief. And I want to consider three things as we look in particular at three different words in our text. First, I want us to consider how that the salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ is a sure salvation. It's a salvation of certainty. And we see that in this word that the Lord uses, the word verily, when he says, Verily I say unto thee, Today thou shalt be with me in paradise. Secondly, for the second head, I want us to consider the swiftness of salvation which is found in the Lord Jesus Christ. The swiftness, for that is taught to us also here in the saying from our Lord, in this word, today. Today shalt thou be with me in paradise. And our third head, Lord willing, comes from this word paradise. And that teaches us that the salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ is a greatly satisfying salvation. So again, the three heads are first, the certainty of salvation in Christ. Secondly, the swiftness of salvation. And thirdly, the satisfaction of salvation in Christ. And so first, let us look at this word, verily. As we see how it teaches us of the certainty of salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now this word verily is used several times, is it not, in the Gospels. Jesus often uses this term as a way of introducing a weighty or a solemn expression. What does this word mean, verily? Well, Perhaps it's more at home in the Elizabethan language from which we have our English translation. But verily means truly or surely, firmly, faithfully. It is as if to say, this is a trustworthy saying. What I'm about to tell you, you can bank on it. This is a sure word. Now, of course, everything that the Lord speaks is a sure word. But the Lord condescends to our weakness of faith. And so he oftentimes gives this word as a prelude to wake us up, for us to take notice, for us to recognize that what he is about to say is truly true. And also I find it in that connection interesting when we look at the word itself. The word in the Greek here translated as verily is actually a transliteration from a word in the Hebrew. What is transliteration? Well, when we speak of translation, of course, we mean that you take a word from a language that you want to translate. You take that word, you take the sense of that word, at least according to the traditional method of formal equivalence, and you try to capture that word as best you can in the receiving language, in the target language. And that's what we mean by translation. But here, I'm speaking to transliteration. What that means, and I know this may seem odd, but it is, as it were, a translating of each individual letter of a word. And so, in this case, we have, for example, in the Hebrew, the letter Aleph, which corresponds to the Greek letter Alpha, 
We have then the Hebrew letter maim, which corresponds to the Greek letter mu. We have in Hebrew what we call a pointing, which gives a vowel sound, which corresponds in the Greek to, in this case, to the letter eta. And then we have in the Hebrew the letter nun, which corresponds in the Greek to the letter nu. Now, the very same thing happened in our English language. In other words, this word is a common word in our English language that you will all recognize, and it's also derived from a transliteration. And so let's see if you can figure it out as I give you the spelling here. Again, from the Greek, alpha being transliterated to our letter A, the Greek, the letter mu, being transliterated to our letter M, the Greek letter eta being transliterated for our letter E, and the Greek letter nu being transliterated in our letter N. And so I tell you that the Greek word underneath this word verily is none other, literally the word all men, all men. How is that for attesting to the surety of this expression from our Lord. And indeed, in the Gospels, do we not see places where the Lord even repeats this word as if to emphasize his expression even more, if that were possible? He says, verily, verily. And so it is as if to say, amen and amen. And so you could even think of it this way. When the Lord speaks to this poor, wretched man, this dying thief, it is as if the Lord says to him, Amen, I say unto you. Amen. And indeed, this Greek word is translated as amen in places in the scripture as well as verily. And as if that was not enough to show the sureness of this word from the lips of our dying Savior, consider also how the Lord Jesus himself refers to himself as the amen. As we read in Revelation chapter 3, he says in his letter to the church at Laodicea, These things saith the Amen, the faithful and true witness. Jesus Christ is the Amen, and he speaks to this poor dying man next to him, Amen, I say unto you. Similarly, in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, we read that all the promises of God in Christ are yea and amen unto the glory of God. Do you see then what a sure word this is that Jesus is speaking to this dying man? It is as if to say, I know that around you is this scene of death and darkness and wickedness and the mockery of the wicked. Yet I tell you, despite all those things, verily in this very same day, you shall be with me in paradise, verily. And so, you see, there's no room for any ambiguity here by the nature of the expression of our Lord and by the very fact of who it was who spoke these words. For Jesus is that God-man, perfectly sinless. He is the eternal Son of God. And we read in the Scripture, it is impossible for God to lie. And so I tell you that the salvation that is in the Lord Jesus Christ is a sure one. 
and that for this pitiful man dying next to the Lord, there was no ambiguity, there was no shadow of a doubt as to the outcome. There was no equivocation, no back and forth, no vacillation. There was no deliberation among the Godhead. No, there was only certainty and sureness in this man's salvation. And so I can hear the soul of someone saying, yes, I, I'm, I'm pleased that it was so with this, this poor man, this dying thief. But as for myself, I have doubts. I have doubts about my own salvation in the Lord. And I don't have that experience that that thief had on the cross when Jesus was right there personally and directly telling him that for this man, he was going to go to paradise. Well, I tell you, my brothers and sisters, that we have just as sure of a word from the Lord as that dying thief had. Where do we have that word of assurance? It is here in the word of God. The Bible that I hold in my hand, that I tell you, is the sure word of God for our salvation. It is just as sure, I tell you, as the word that that dying thief heard from the lips of our Savior on the cross. There is no difference in the surety of it. But you say, how is that possible? I can't read in the Bible anywhere about me personally that I'm going to be saved like it was in the case of this, this thief? Well, the answer is, look to the Gospels, look to the promises of the Gospel in the Scriptures, look to the Lord Jesus Christ as He reveals Himself in the Gospels, as He freely offers Himself to us, and cleave and hold on to those promises of the Gospel. I'll just take one very well-known one, just as an illustration, but there are many promises in the Gospels for salvation. In John, in the third chapter, we read that God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever shall believe in Him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Well, what is the condition of that promise? The condition of the fulfillment of that promise is that you believe in Him. It says that whosoever shall believe. Whosoever, that means even you and me, if we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, then we have that sure word of God. And Jesus says in another place, Scripture cannot be broken. And we have that sure word of God that if we believe in Him, we shall not perish, but have everlasting life. And I tell you, that, that word of God here is just as certain and sure as it was spoken to this man who is on his cross, dying, this poor, miserable wretch, dying next to the Lord Jesus Christ. Think about this. If Christ, at his lowest point of humiliation, gives a sure word of salvation to this dying thief, how much more now that Christ has been resurrected, he has ascended, he has been coronated, as it were, as king by the session of Christ, what we call the session of Christ, and is sitting down at the right hand of God the Father. 
How much more is the exalted Christ able and willing now to save you and to save me from our sin if we were but to place our trust in him and receive him with all of our heart? Let us turn to our second head, which is that doctrine of the word of God that we see here in the saying of our Lord. We see in his word that he uses today. Today. I want you to see with me this morning how wonderful this word is. Today. Such hope and comfort that word must have given to this poor, wretched thief on the cross. Today. For you see, the Lord Jesus Christ, in this sure word, in this promise of salvation to this man, this fulfillment of salvation is not one that is to be delayed, one that is to be put off, but he says, today you shall be with me in paradise. This very same day in which we are suffering these things, this very same day in which we are in great pain and agony and great anguish as we hang on our crosses, this is the day that you will be with me in paradise. This is the day, not tomorrow, not the next day, not a few days from now. That reminds me also, you've heard it said that when Jesus died on the cross, he then descended into hell and was there for three days. How does that comport with this saying from the cross, from the lips of our Savior, when he tells the thief, today you shall be with me where? In hell? No. In paradise. Today, the same day, you will be with me in paradise. What a word of hope and comfort to this man. It is not going to be put off. It's not going to be next year, like our politicians often tell us. Well, my campaign promise was not fulfilled at this time as I had hoped, but next year, give me more time, next year, Jesus doesn't say anything like that to this man. It is not after several years. It is not after a, a, a generation passes by. It is not after a thousand years passes by. It's not after a millennium or two passes by. But today you shall be with me in paradise. This reminds me of another doctrine, this time from Roman Catholicism. I ask you, in this one single word today, where is there any room for the doctrine of purgatory? Where is there any space in the saying of our Lord? How can we fit it in? How can we interpose it within the words here from our Savior when he says, Verily, today you will be with me in paradise. There's no room for it. And, and I, I ask you this, what man was better qualified, as it were, for spending a millennium or two in purgatory than this thief that was hanging on the cross next to our Lord. Now, the scripture doesn't tell us what all crimes precisely that this man committed. He is described, though, of course, as a thief, so we knew that he committed robbery. 
Uh, the scripture also refers to both this thief and the other thief that hang next to Christ as a malefactor, as a transgressor. But we don't know, do we? We don't have any greater detail than that. But what we do know is that whatever this man's crime was, it was certainly worthy to draw the attention of the civil magistrate, was it not? Whatever his crime was, it was certainly worthy that the Romans thought it was a crime for which he should be executed. It was a capital crime. And an execution which is very shameful and very agonizing, the death on a cross. And so whatever it was that this thief committed, it was worthy of those things. He himself confesses it and says on the cross, we are receiving the due reward of our deeds, as we read in our passage. And so I tell you, who else could have been better qualified, as it were, to spend a millennium or two in purgatory to work out some penance for the many deeds of wickedness? Because, uh, you see, he never had any opportunity for that because after this saying from the Lord, about three hours later, the man dies. No, there's just not even a hint of purgatory in our text. There's not even a bare plausibility of it. And indeed, Jesus in one word blows purgatory completely away in the single word today. Today you shall be with me in paradise. And think about this. Even as Christ spoke these words to the penitent thief, at the same time he must have been accomplishing redemption for him. Isn't that marvelous? At the same time that Jesus is proclaiming the sure hope in the deliverance and salvation of this wretched thief, at that same time, he was becoming this man's sin of thievery. As we read in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, For he hath made him to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. This thief that was dying next to Christ, how could it be otherwise? Surely, as we read the Lord's promise to this man, this man must be a member of the elect. Though this regeneration and change came barely, just right at the end of his life, right before he died, yet nonetheless, how else can we understand it if Jesus says that you will be with me today in paradise, in paradise. And so it must mean, in some remarkable way, perhaps in an ironic way, that even as the Lord Jesus is assuring this man of salvation, he is about the business of saving him. He is about the business of atoning for his sin. He is becoming this man's sin of thievery, and all the sin that this man ever committed in heart, word, or deed, at the same time that he's assuring this man of his salvation. Such remarkable words from our Lord, even that it may be fulfilled, as we read, as, as it's recorded in the opening of the Gospel of Matthew, close to the time of the birth of Jesus, the Lord speaks to Joseph and says, that thou shalt call his name Jesus for he shall save his people from their sins. And that's exactly what the Lord Jesus Christ was doing on the cross. 
There's no universalism. He was not dying for everyone that ever would be born, but he was indeed dying to save his own people, and he was becoming the sin of his own people, that he may pay for the penalty of their sin, that he may save them. Let us turn then to our next head, which is found in the word paradise. Paradise. That is, that the salvation of the Lord Jesus Christ is not only a sure one, it's not only a swift one, but also it is a satisfying one. For that is what this word paradise conveys to us. Now, when the Lord said this word to this dying thief, that today you shall be with me in paradise, the immediate sense is that they would be together in heaven. But paradise is much broader than just heaven. You see, our final goal, the final fruition of our salvation doesn't end in heaven. And that might seem strange to many who think of heaven that way. But heaven is a beginning of the complete salvation that we shall know in the Lord. For after heaven comes the general resurrection in which we'll be resurrected in our bodies. And the bodies, as we are risen in our bodies, they won't be uh, perishable bodies like the bodies that we have now. As the Apostle says in 1 Corinthians 15, they will be imperishable bodies. And then we also read in the Scripture that the Lord will consume the earth with fire and create a new heaven and a new earth, and that then we shall dwell there. That my brothers and sisters, is a more complete picture of what we mean by paradise. Matthew Henry writes that the word here, paradise, alludes to the Garden of Eden. The Garden of Eden, which is where our first parents were placed after their creation, when they were still in their innocency. And indeed, Jesus Christ in the Scripture is called our second Adam. Why is that? Jesus is our second Adam because he restores to us all those things that we lost in our first Adam, even paradise. For in the book of Revelation, again, we read in chapter 2, Jesus speaking says, To him that overcomes will I give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. There, the word paradise is used not as a way to refer back to the garden, but to refer forward, because it says, for those who overcome will I give to eat of the tree of life. And indeed, in the very last chapter of the book of Revelation, that reference to the tree of life is picked up again. And we are told that the leaves of that tree will be for the healing of the nations. Paradise as we read in the marginal notes of the Geneva Bible of this place, is that place of everlasting joy and salvation through the goodness and mercy of God, a most pleasant rest for the souls of the godly, a most quiet and joyful dwelling. This paradise is also described for us in the book of Psalms. In Psalm 36, Paradise is styled in this language, 
God's house. For we read there in Psalm 36, verse 8, They shall be abundantly satisfied with the fatness of thy house, and thou shalt make them drink of the river of thy pleasures. Similarly, in Psalm 16, we read, In thy presence is fullness of joy. At thy right hand there are pleasures forevermore. Now, in that 36th Psalm, in that language where we read, They shall be abundantly satisfied with the fatness of God's house. Those words, they shall be abundantly satisfied, in the Hebrew is to say, they shall be made drunk. So the Word of God tells us that paradise, that the Lord's house will be a place where we shall be drunk with the fatness of God's house that we shall be drunk with the river of God's pleasures forever. Now, drunkenness, if we mean by that, drunkenness that comes from an excessive amount of wine or of other alcoholic beverages, is a sin, and Scripture calls it a sin. But it's interesting how the Word of God here takes that as a metaphor into a sort of, as it were, a kind of holy drunkenness, not drunk with wine or other alcoholic drinks, but drunk with the river of God's pleasures. The idea there is that there shall be such a plenty, such an abundance of God's goodness and His blessing and joy for us in paradise that we will be overwhelmed with it. Also, just as drunken men forget about their cares and troubles, so will it be for us if we be in Christ, if we imbibe with the river of God's pleasures, we will lose all of our troubles, all of our cares. We shall only know eternal rest and joy, nothing but bliss in the presence of Christ, and that forever and ever. And so, as I've attempted to give some sort of description of paradise from the Word of God, we must also be reminded that whatever we say about heaven is something that we cannot exhaustively understand now. As we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, I have not seen nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man, the things which God hath prepared for them that love Him. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9. There is also, I should not neglect to mention, a certain quality about paradise which is preeminent. In fact, without this, there would be no paradise. And that we see, again, in the words of our Lord here, when He says that today... Thou shalt be with me in paradise. You see, paradise is not just wonderful as a place, as it is in itself. But paradise is paradise because that is where Jesus Christ is. That is where we will commune with the Lord forever and ever. And so, my brothers and sisters, we should find our chief joy in our communion in Christ. Because you see, that is what paradise is all about. 
If you take Christ out of paradise, then you have no paradise. If you do not delight in and enjoy the Lord Jesus Christ now, what sort of experience will paradise be for you? Indeed, it is in our very nature, the way that God made us, as we see also in our catechism, that God made us to enjoy Him forever. God made us with such a nature that we are to delight in Him forever and ever. As Jesus prays at another time in that well-known prayer to His heavenly Father recorded for us in the 17th chapter of the Gospel of John, Jesus says, Father, I will that they also whom Thou hast given me be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory, which thou hast given me. And so let us turn to one final application, and I'll close with this. This is an application for those friends of ours who have not yet placed their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, who have not received Him for their salvation. Friend, don't abuse this text that we have from the Word of God here and think that you can put off your salvation. No one should think to themselves, oh, well, you see, this thief in the last three hours of his life was able to be converted and turn to the Lord and be saved. And so I can put off my meeting with Christ. I can put off dealing with the burden of the guilt of my many sins. No, I tell you that this case of this thief was clearly an extraordinary one. This is not the norm that the Scripture is bringing out to us. In fact, That is part of the marvel of our text this morning, is how extraordinary this is, that in the midst of all this death, there is life and there is grace coming from the Lord Jesus Christ and promising salvation to this wretched man. My friend, how do you know that you will have the same opportunity that this thief had before you die? Don't you see that if you put off meeting with Christ and dealing with your sin, that your attitude is not so much like this penitent thief, but it is more like the other thief, the hard-hearted thief, the one who was lost. For remember, though salvation is swift, as we say, for the Lord said to the penitent thief today, You shall be with me in paradise. What about that same day for the other thief hanging on the other side of the Lord Jesus Christ? What was his today like? We didn't see in our text Jesus speaking the same word of comfort to him. We didn't see in our text Jesus speaking the same word of promise of salvation to him, only to this other man, to the penitent thief. And so what must we conclude? What was that day like for the hard-hearted thief? Verily, in his today, he went to hell. How can we see it any other way? 
And so, though the salvation which is found in the Lord Jesus Christ is swift, we could also say that damnation is swift. As we read in Psalm 73, Surely thou didst set them in slippery places, thou castest them down into destruction. How are they brought into desolation as in a moment? They are utterly consumed with terrors. Also, in Deuteronomy chapter 32, we read, Their foot shall slide in due time, for the day of their calamity is at hand, and the things that shall come upon them make haste. Make haste. Swift, indeed, is also the judgment and the damnation of the Lord, just as the salvation in Christ is swift. So, my friend, don't put off until tomorrow your meeting with Christ. For how do you know what opportunity you will have for that even tomorrow? As we read also in Proverbs chapter 27, Boast not thyself of tomorrow, for thou knowest not what a day may bring forth. We don't know what will happen to us tomorrow, do we? We do not know if today will be our last day, and if for us there will be no tomorrow. Today was the day of salvation for the penitent thief, but will today be the day of salvation for you, my friend? See Christ today while he still may be found. As the scripture says, behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Amen. Let us pray. O blessed Lord God, praise you for Jesus. Praise you for that blessed Savior. There is no hope for us outside of him, even as there was no hope for that thief, except that he turned to him. O God, help us then to be mindful throughout this day of the hope, the living hope that is in the Lord Jesus Christ. May it encourage us that we may walk with him, even those of us who have professed a faith in him. May it encourage us to seek him, that we may heighten our fellowship with him and our communion with him, that we may draw closer to him, that we may more and more adore him, that we may love him, that we may adore him as Christ the King on the gallows tree. Hear us now. We do ask that you would be with us in the remainder of this service. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.